Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, Bob Walters. He's a Christianity writer, philosopher, a teacher in the Christian community. I call him a philosopher, even though he may not call himself that. Uh, he publishes a column that comes out every week that's really, really interesting and uh, comforting. It's called Common Christianity. So he'll give an opinion, a story, or a lesson from a Christian perspective. And again, it's an excellent column. It's free over email. And at the end, we'll, um, you know, we'll let listeners know how they can uh, sign up to it if they wish. So welcome back, Bob. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate the opportunity to talk some more. No problem. I know in the notes you wanted to talk about the, maybe the intersection of Greek philosophy and the era of you know, Socrates and other philosophers and, and Christianity. I don't know. I guess I'm just not familiar with the intersections of it, but maybe you can speak about that a little bit. But um, yeah, go ahead if you would. It's one of the things that I would never portray myself as a Greek philosophical ex. I know some people who are, and I'm not that. But when you look at the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, to me it's a fascinating aspect that where the the end of the New Testament is Book of Malachi, 400 B.C.-ish. Everybody argues about what the date is. Some people will even tell you that maybe Daniel was written after that. There's no shortage ever in the Christian or you know philosophical theological community of arguing about who knows what you know what a fact might be. But pretty much every famous Greek philosopher that you've heard of. Well, there's, there's three, you know, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And then there was a guy before them named Thales, whose name is kind of lost to history, but he's sort of considered the, the father of Greek philosophy. But that Periclean era, what was about 400 BC, that's when Socrates said, you know, know thyself, this, this whole idea of understanding, examining the self, and that, that the best things you could have as a human being, would be this, uh, you know, intelligence and self-examination and so forth. But those three guys, the famous ones in, in Greece, those are what a Bible person would call the intertestamental period. It's the period between the end of the Old Testament, 400 and something B.C., and then the time of Christ. We'll just call it, you know, 0 B.C. A.D. In, in that, uh, the first New Testament writing would have been maybe the year 50, let's say. That's what they, so, yeah, yeah. Generally, people figure it's uh, anywhere from sometime in the 40s, and they, they figure it was probably wrapped up with John and Revelation it, by the end of the first century. There are people who think that possibly the Gospel of John might have been actually the last thing written. None of that, I, I don't look at that as, you know, a, a salvation issue. There's a lot about the Bible that remains a ministry, and I think that's a design of God because faith in the Christian community is so. I mean, that, that's what Jesus said: you'll be you'll be saved by your faith, you know, not not by your factsness. Oh, sorry. Quick question, and I'll let you get on with it. I hope this doesn't take us too far of a different direction. If uh, one was to include, you know, non-canon, uh, the apocrypha, uh, you know, etc., would there be a um, a period where there was no testimony, you know, with the intertestimonial period have shrunk or gone away completely. Kind of a big if, and it's intertestament, just, you know, just so just to keep those Sorry. phrase. It's okay. The phraseology, you know, that era, the Jews were expecting God to be quiet 
for a while. And an awful lot happened in that period between 400 BC and, you know, and a couple thousand years before that, 1500 years before that. You know, and, and also you have to be careful when you say the Apocrypha, that still is in there in the, in the Roman Catholic Bible. And there are a lot of things that are called Apocrypha. Apo, anything that starts APO means something that's seen. So it's something that quasi-scriptural is something that's recognized, uh, maybe not as the authority of the actual canon. But when you say the Apocrypha, there's seven books of the Roman Catholics. Some people have 15. There's an awful lot of different writing that didn't actually make it into the what you know the the, the 66 books that we see in in the modern uh, Protestant Bible, where the Roman Catholic Bible has 73 books because it has the Apocrypha which are things that happened in that intertestamental period. The leading thing of which was the Maccabean Revolt. And now we're coming up to the time of year of Hanukkah, that the Maccabean Revolt, uh, when the Jews wanted the Greeks out of Jerusalem in B.C. 150, 160 or so, that whole thing with the menorah and the candles and the things that, that wouldn't, you know, they, they had light when they didn't think they would have light. That was something that happened in the intertestamental period. And it's it's covered in the Apocrypha, but if you only read the Protestant Bible, you wouldn't know about it. Where I was going to go uh, back to in that period from a standpoint of doctrines and you know faith versus facts and, and those things. And some people really have a hard time. It's, I don't have hard facts. I can't possibly have faith. But where the Greek philosophers wanted you to know know yourself. Shakespeare said, you know, uh, to thine own self be true. The Greek philosophy was a whole lot about the individual. And while that you know, each of the philosophers had different gradients of how much you were supposed to know. Everybody thought that the best way to live would be to be intellectually, philosophically, figure out who you are. That's it. That, that's the good of life. When you encounter Jesus Christ, you know, another few hundred years later, now you're talking about a, a really different kind of a good that's based on faith and it's based on the identity of Jesus. It's funny how often when you're talking to somebody that wants to have a specific, defined, whatever it is about Christianity, what does this verse mean in the Bible? What does that verse mean? And that's what the Greeks wanted. You know, something was not real if you could not see it, touch it, feel it, define it, you know, and then later on with the scientific theory, you know, you had, it had to be repeatable, Francis Bacon and, and all that, and 1,500 years after that. But the idea was that reality was only that which you could see and perceive. And as when you start reading the Gospels, you start seeing things where Jesus isn't saying so much, you know, know yourself. He's saying, know me, understand who I am. So where you go back to the Greek philosophers, and I, I think in a lot of ways, they've, you know, we've got them to thank for the state of faith. From that point forward, even up through the Enlightenment, we had all these guys that said, look, the important thing is the mind of the human being, that that's where God is. And uh, I heard Elon Musk make a joke about the God of Spinoza in one of his interviews because somebody asked him if he was a Christian. And he's like, no, you know, you know, I mean, and it's like he didn't use that properly because the, the God of Spinoza is the sum total of all human experience, knowledge, and all that stuff. And that's what Spinoza, who's in a couple hundred years ago, that was his idea of philosophy. And that's all that God could be, that there couldn't be this, this outside thing that created everything outside of himself. So you've got the Greeks and you've got the Enlightenment where point is the mind of man, where the point in Jesus Christ is God created you, Jesus is the Son of God, know his identity and your salvation resides in that faith and knowledge of who he is, trusting him, and then his commands are to love God and love others. So where it becomes a little bit less about the self and more about the uh, faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting about what you're saying, right? I look for a lot of paradox because I 
feel like that's God's nature is, is to be paradoxical. So Greek philosophy, which is so powerful and has been around for so long, was the, I guess, yeah, it was probably the center of philosophy of the world at that time. And in then very same place, the New Testament was written, I guess, pretty much all in Greek. So it's funny from a um, place where the philosophy talks about man and I guess the, you know, I don't know if you call it the sovereignty of man, but, you know, elevated man from that very same place, the New Testament came where it elevated God back again in the same language. I guess it's kind of a coincidence, paradox. Yeah. I, and I know that, that the, the whole Christian thing looks like a paradox that everybody outside and if, where you would look at God as a paradox, I would probably sit down and talk about God's righteousness, truth, goodness, love, those kinds of things. One second, I'm not, I'm not saying, I guess yeah, I should have said it more clearly. I don't think God is paradoxical, but I think the ways in which what works for us to live well always seems to contain paradox for some strange reason. Like you, you can't get yeah. in shape sitting around, you got to work out hard. I know that's really a good point about how, yes, it does seem paradoxical because, Christian perspective, we are fallen mankind. We we cannot see the full glory of God. We are limited in what we can see. That would drive the Greeks nuts. That They would say, well, if you can't see it, it can't be real. And yet when I encounter my faith and encountering Christ, I see truth and faith and I, I see the whole package in the great big world that before I understood faith in Christ, there was a big part of reality that, that was closed off to didn't know what I didn't know. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Okay. Well, continuing on with the Greeks, the Greek philosophers, what impact did it have locally? How far did it spread? Like, how much do you know about um, their influence at the time that this was first happening? When, understand that, that Jerusalem was the utter backwater place. People will say that God chose the Jews at the time. And they were talking, you know, 2000 BC, that the whole Abrahamic thing that, that happened with, with bringing the Jews along that God specifically, he didn't go to the lead place of civilization at the time. He didn't make his big splash in Greece. He didn't make it in Rome or in Babylonia, so to speak. He had his own people, and they weren't, they weren't very well thought of. So the, the whole Hebrew thing, you know, the, the fact that they actually generally spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. In fact, in the time of Christ, they had translators in the synagogues who would take the formal Hebrew and translate it into Aramaic so that the people that were there could understand what was going on. The um, Greek was kind of the, uh, what <laughs> I guess today we'd call it the lingua franca, which means language of you know France, obviously, but that they were the controlling cultural language of that entire area or an era, 400 BC up until even it well into the ascendance and power of Rome. The first, second centuries, Greece was still the language of the cultured and of the learned. So not that many people would have known known Hebrew. But the Greeks are sitting there and they're they've got this brilliant ideas about man's destiny and how he's supposed to live and so forth. And yet the one thing that is there and the Greeks knew it that somewhere there had to be a controlling overall top of the heap God. Plato, uh when he talks about the shadows and the and the caves and so forth, he's one of the things it's like 
there's a reality out there that for whatever reason is, is blocked off and we can only see it you know through a glass darkly as it's, it's put in the New Testament but they they didn't know what it you know they, okay there's got to be a God we can't seem to find him and they had Zeus and they had all these other man-made gods and that kind of you know and had very human-like qualities but the Greeks knew enough and this goes up to the time of Jesus and the time of the Apostle Paul that in a place called the Areopagus and this is in Athens, uh, it's, uh, I'll probably get this wrong. I don't have my Bible out in front of me, but it's in Acts. I want to say it's 23. It might be Acts 18. But in the latter part of Acts, when Paul is in Athens and he's, he's speaking at this place called the Areopagus and they're, they, they've heard about this Jesus guy, the Greek says, and, and who is he? And Paul says, I'm here to tell you about the unknown God. Well, the unknown God was as if they had a, in the shrine where they had all their gods at this Areopagus place or somewhere in Athens, that they had, there was the unknown God. And it's like, okay, here's the guy that's the main guy, but we don't know him, but we know he must exist. We just don't know anything about him. And Paul addressed them. And again, this is in the book of Acts, that this is who we're talking about. This is who Jesus is. He is this unknown God. He is the God of all things and the God of all creation. And he's the guy you're actually looking for. And some Greeks bought it and some didn't. But that was the fact that the, the Greeks thought there was a God, but couldn't define who God was. They couldn't define him. They didn't think it was real. And it wasn't until Paul got there in the first century and they and it, they started saying, okay, now maybe that's starting to fit together. But again, you know, the, the Christian movement in these larger metropolitan areas, even in Jerusalem, was fairly uh, minimal for years. I mean, there were people that were deeply affected. Thousands were deeply affected, but you're dealing you know, with millions of people in various places. And, uh, you know, for the most part, people had, well, we've got our own scribes, we've got our own poets, we've got our own philosophers and way of doing things in government. So this idea that there's a king of kings who's more powerful than anybody, and it's like, Everything, you know, in the secular world, you know, in our fallen world, we're all looking for power. And here is the guy that's supposed to be the king of the world who came in humility and was killed and then came back to life. And so, you know, a proper Greek would say, okay, we'll do that again. If you're really God, do that again. It was kind of a one-shot deal. But the people who saw him saw the resurrected Jesus. You know, uh, several of them were tortured and killed. All, you know, all the disciples except John have, uh, you know, there are different martyr traditions with them as are, you know, the, the first 300 years of, of Christian history. Not much of which is surprising is, is really, you know, once you get past the Bible, there's a guy named Eusebius that wrote around 300 AD and, and on into then. But a lot of things were lost. And, and I think, you know, I, I really believe God planned it that way, that the idea with faith in Christ isn't to, oh, yeah, I can just see it right there. It's written on this wall. We see very plainly, here's the deal. point with Christ was, this has got to be something that's, that's really hidden in your heart, and not everybody's going to know about it. I mean, when you look at, um, you know, when you read through Exodus, you could criticize the, you know, the Jews there as like, I know it's not nice to say, but like, you know, just being complainers and, and whiners and you know, no matter what God did for them, they just cried for, you know, and say, what have you done for me lately? Then when I read that, I think, oh no, I'm sure I've done that. And I do that all the time. But I guess that's just an example of no matter how many miracles they experienced and they got to experience a lot of crazy stuff, they still had this problem. They still, their faith still would waver a lot. Yeah. From the, the 30,000 foot view of that for me is that the Old Testament is brilliant in telling us what doesn't work for humanity. And a list of rules in general doesn't work. I mean, you, you talk about Exodus when they're leaving Egypt and Moses and, and all those things that God sustains them. But, you know, all we have is this manna stuff. All we have is this, you know, it, 
we still think we need golden calf, so we still need to take this and that. And then God says, I'm going to give you a list of things. Now, follow this list of rules. Then you get into Leviticus, and you've got all the Levitical laws. And okay, you know, we've, we've got all those. So now we've sort of defined a faith that if you want to be proper with God, and when you're looking at that, it's talking about having a relationship with God and being his chosen people. There's not much said in there about a permanent salvation. Most Jews believe in a resurrection on the final day, whatever that is. An awful lot of, of Jews think that the death of, of a human person is a real is a catastrophe because that's the end of it. That's all there is. Um, so... The idea where almost, well, you hate to say almost every religion, but even if you're looking at Hinduism, even if you're looking at uh, Buddhism, there's some idea of an afterlife. A lot of tribal religions, the pagan religions, somewhere in there, there's something that this isn't the only realm we will encounter in our in the total existence. And people can't see beyond the other side of death. But the Jews were somebody who said, hey, we've got a God that's up close and, and fairly personal. He was the God of their of their nation not nearly as personal as Jesus Christ became, you know, in, in each individual heart. But the Jews were pious, and, and, they, and they were the only religion like that. They were the only religion that said, hey, we've got this one true God. He's the creator of all things. He's the be-all, end-all of, of whatever any God could be. And almost everybody else had some limitations on their gods, or they had hundreds of gods, or in the case of the Hindus, thousands of gods, which later got a little bit detuned. Yes, I've read that uh, about the unseen realm, like Michael Heiser, and talking about um, these lesser gods. I guess that you know Elohim that are listed in the that listed, but uh, mentioned in the Bible. So, I mean, do you believe, or I guess it seems like a lot of Christians, uh, you know, believe obviously in the one true God, but I don't know if they believe in these lesser ones that are hanging around causing trouble. Well, there's demons and there's angels, and uh, but not to promote Dan Brown's book by roughly that name. But that's that's angels and demons. It's the opposite. It's okay. Yeah, I was trying not to say the title. <laughs> I'm not a big Dan Brown fan. The fun books, don't get me wrong. I know a lot of people that have read them, but that's another story. But do angels exist? Yes, I'm convinced they do. Do demons exist? Yes, I'm convinced they do. Does Satan exist? Yes, I'm convinced he does. Is Jesus Christ real? Is God real? Is the Holy Trinity a, a divine relationship that want that of humanity is created in in that image? Yes, I believe that all to be. So people that, you know, if they're these lesser gods or whatever, you know, small G gods, you know, there's zillions of those. I mean, heck, money is a god. You know, your own fame, your pride, you, you make all kinds of things. You make your kids god, you know, that, that you will bind yourself to them at the expense of, you know, of a, of a relationship with Christ. So, yeah, maybe you should, you know, so when you say gods, what what are you meaning there, the lesser gods? Well, like, like Baal, Iftar, you know, those, Malak. You know, some people have spoken, spoken about them. I mean, again, none of them are good, obviously. None of them have been mentioned to be forces for good, but are they even there? Are they having any influence or not? I have no idea. It just seems like some people say, oh, because of the way, uh, you know, God has mentioned in the Bible that there may be these these other lesser ones that are about, but they're no good. Yeah, well, there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible. The Nephilim in, I, I think it's Genesis 5-ish, where they maybe these were beings that where angels had come down and had, you know, had relations with human women, so they had these, and people think that maybe Goliath was was one of those, or that that's where the Philistines came. There's any number of stories, and you'll always, you know, people say, you know, this and that, as, as you well know. Um, our friend George Babawi, rest in peace, Dr. George Babawi, uh, Egyptian Bible translator that we spoke a little bit about last time, you know, he was adamant that those things do exist in, in terms of being some, you know, spirit kinds of things that, that do exist. But but his advice was a to praise Psalm ninety one is it's a very uplifting kind of a psalm 
And the other thing was that if you see trouble, don't try to fight Satan. Go stand with Jesus. You know, talk to Jesus rather than arguing with Satan was always the same. So, you know, when you don't understand a God, when you don't understand a spirit or something that's happening, my default position is to go stand with Jesus, talk with Jesus, pray with Jesus, and then, you know, and then we'll just kind of see what happens. And all that time, you're not affecting for the most part, an intercessory prayer, yes, I'm going to pray that God, you know, as you pray, sometimes the greatest effect of a prayer is your own peace in terms of, okay, we've prayed, I know I can feel the movement and the support of the Holy Spirit, but crazy things still happen. And so how do you prove, well, that was God or that was Satan? I'm not sure you always can. I mean, look what's going on in the Middle East right now. You shouldn't have to vote God to say that what, what Hamas is doing, what they did to the Israelis by you know, going across, killing women and children, that was that was awful. People say, well, but yeah, now you can't go back the other way. And yet there are, you know, I, my mind goes back to the kind of the who started it thing. And the Christian thing about turning the other cheek, there's a point where you have to confront injustice. And it's not always going to be pretty. But even as a human being, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. But you know, if I have to say, okay, I got to bring out the Bible to say that what Hamas did to Israel is wrong, I shouldn't have to you know, come bring out the heavy artillery to look at that situation and say, well, you know, that's wrong. If somebody says, I'm a boy, I'm a girl, well, no, I want to be something else. There's too much biology and fact there that has to be bent, too many lies where I can say, no, I don't have to try to quote something from Scripture if we can't figure that out just based on, you know, on, on human experience. You know, there's a bigger problem here because we're in an era of let's see how great a lie we can tell ourselves or tell humanity when, you know, there, there are things that you just Scripture is pretty obvious to me about a lot of these things. But if it doesn't say something specific to people, well, Jesus never really talked about you know, who you should marry. It's like, well, you've got the man-woman thing, you know, that, that seems to be pretty obvious, but it's the way things work best. You know, yes, you can have a life, you know, in various relationships and so forth, but what I don't want to be is is lied. I mean, that that's kind of my default. And I, I see Christ as a, as a very great truth. I know these would be impossible questions, but why in today's world are there uh, a billion Muslims? I'm sure a lot of them are, are not, I'm sure a lot of them are I mean, they're earnest. They try. They believe in Allah, etc. Why do they coexist at the same time as the billion Christians? At the same time as you know, millions of Jews and Hindus. And why? Why do all these different religions exist now? Is it? Is it that God wants to? Does God say, "Well, if you're gonna believe this way about me, fine. At least you believe something." What do you think is that? He thinks of all this stuff, and why is it? Why is it like? Well, because you're here's where we're conflating the mind of God with the mind of man. It's fairly plain in the Bible that Jesus came for all. But only a few will actually understand it and get it. And I'm glad we had have a chance to revisit this a little bit. Uh, we talked about it a bit last time. But there are those Muslims are very very sincere. The Christians are very sincere. They have very different relationship experiences when it comes to God. A Christian has a relationship directly with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's it's a relationship we see the the triune, the, the Trinity God, that that exists because it's a relationship. Because if God is love, you can't have love without a relationship. So you've got the Trinity, smallest number of community, three people, and that what, however that mystery works, one in three, three in one, you know, however that works, it's still about relationship and love. When you don't have that relationship in the Godhead, you don't hear as much about love. In the Quran, the word love appears almost not at all in the Arabic. From what I understand, people like George who could read, you know, the old stuff. Um, when you look at the Quran in, in an English translation, 
just to you know kind of see what's in there and uh, and just uh, do a word search for the word love. It shows that I mean, when I did it, it showed up about a hundred times. It was in the general context of God does not love this and God does not love that. That there were things that you know that are proscribed by God that hey, you shouldn't do these. So why are there so many of all these different religions? You know, I, I'm not sure that that's just a uh, that's an evidence of what God wants, or if that's just really evidence of fallen man that not everybody's finding the entirety of what God is offering to mankind. So if you believe something else besides Christianity, they say, well, we, we know we've got the whole package, and you can argue about that. for It becomes a very personal thing. I don't think it's a personal truth. I, I think it is true. And I'll have a zillion opinions about the various you know stages of that truth or what I might believe. But whether you know, does objective truth exist? Did God have an objective truth? idea when he created an image of himself and then cursed mankind, you know, what was that all about? And people hate that because you always hear, well, a good God wouldn't do this. Okay, now you're taking God's spot and trying to figure out in your mind what you think right and wrong is. It's not always going to be right. And uh, I also look right now at what's going on in the Middle East. And my first time through the Bible, we privately, I know, have discussed this, but I, I was really rattled my first time through the Old Testament because of even even the Psalms, even the most loving Psalms, the most peaceful, God, you are beautiful, God, you will sustain me, God, you will do this now. Please go kill my enemies. And I say, hey, wait a minute. You know, what happened about turn the other cheek? Well, you know, in the Old Testament, the laws, God demands, uh, you know, his justice can be very, very rough. It will say, um, you know, I order you to kill this tribe and kill this nation. And then the nation doesn't get killed. And then the person that God had spoken to, then they're punished. And you go, wait a minute, that can't be good. And it does seem paradoxical, but you back out and you go, okay, you've got this God. He's very righteous. There's a, a realm, to use that word, that we can't really see. In prayer, there are heavenly realms, I think, that do kind of reveal themselves in this life occasionally. We're, you know, that in prayer, most Christians I know who have been deep in prayer, who have been deeply in trouble, or have had some great joy. There, there are times when you that that presence of God, that that heavenly realm that they talk about, that Paul talks about in Ephesians. That's not something just to come. That we live in a world where God is, you know, He's looking at us. You know, He sent Christ as a man to us. The Holy Spirit is is hovering around. And then, what do we do with that? Do we criticize the Holy Spirit and the goodness, or do we back up and say, Hey, wait a minute. Maybe instead of blaming God because something isn't the way we want it. Maybe we should blame Satan and then ask ourselves, what is it about our fallenness that we should be doing better, you know, as a total humanity? Because as total humanity, we are chaotic as all, all get out. Again, impossible questions, but why was, and I know God doesn't change in certain ways, but in the way he works with us, or has to work with him, that seems to have changed from Old Testament to New. You know, God is perfect, etc. Why did he deal with us one way, and now, you know, there's new covenants? Why it was the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and then, I still you know, there's new that, covenant. You know, there are four or five covenants. I mean, if you go back to Noah and Abraham and Moses, I mean, there's there's, there's different covenants, and that's, that's not to, just to, to downplay that, but I, I think the answer to that question is, is that the Old Testament tells us what doesn't work that mankind and God knew that. After the fall, it's like, okay, here's a bunch of rules. You know, take your best shot at following these rules. And God knew that we couldn't do it. He knew that the only way that his people would be saved, they would be drawn back into relationship with we Too often we think that our behavior is about is about glorifying God because if we behave, then God gives us, uh, you know, holy cards and stars or whatever that, okay, hey, we're we're lifting him up. I don't think we have that much of an effect on God. I think what we do have a huge effect on 
is ourselves and on mankind. That when we think that if take follow the Ten Commandments, who does that benefit? You know, they, they, those were commandments given to the Jews in the through Moses uh, by God that said, "Here's how you should behave here while you are in the desert." And as it turns out, four saying love and believe God, four saying you know love and believe others, or six saying love and believe others, and um, who's the real beneficiary of that? It's not God; it's us. That's the way to work best for us. So when we think we do things because God is, you know, God is God wants me to do this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this for God. Yeah, but what you're really doing is making your own life better. That this joy that you can feel even in persecution, that's the realm of the Holy Spirit. That I think it, it's there. We don't see it all the time. We're falling, but I, I I know that you'll see glimpses of it enough that you go, okay, this this is true. I found it very useful to look at things through that lens as, uh, you know, why is this in the Bible? Why does God say this? Well, I'm going to assume, assume it's for my benefit as a human. So there's got to be a reason. And if I look at things through that lens, it seems to clear up a lot more. It doesn't clear up everything. Like you said, I think there's an inherent set of mysteries, but it clears a lot of things up. It helps. And it helps a lot if you look first at the Trinity as a relationship and then look at if we're made in God's image, then we're supposed to be in a relationship. And my hunch is is that the heaven to come, the new Jerusalem, the you know, whatever that is, and there's it's a big industry in trying to define that exactly. So it, you know to satisfy the Greeks. I mean, there's tons of Christians out there right today that say, okay, here this is how, this is how the rapture is going to happen. This is how heaven's going to work. All that kind of stuff. I mean, whatever that is, it's going to be grounded in relationship and love. I am sure of that. It won't be grounded in in fear and simply obedience. I think obedience is something that we we have to be very aware of in this life because if we're fallen people and if we're sinful people and if we're given to kind of worrying more about ourselves than others and that when we do things that don't honor God, you know, God's honor is is a to me is a pretty static thing. But when we do that, we realize what we're doing is breaking relationships, you know, around us. And when those relationships go south, our experience as human beings becomes difficult, less joyful, sad, angry, warlike. A lot of folks that refuse to look at God as a as a loving being and to emulate that, that that's what we're supposed to do. Going back to the Greeks for a minute, what happened with uh, with Greek philosophy? How did it did it crash into you know, the coming of Jesus, did it get subsumed by, you know, the New Testament material? Like, what what was the intersection there, the interplay? Well, did, yes, you say that. I I think I know a whole lot more about the fall of Rome than I do about the fall of Greece. But when you figure that the Greece, the Greek culture, was so ascended in those years B.C., and it was it was still going, and it was still the, the culture. When you look at everything that the Greeks did around the Mediterranean, the Hellenistic cultures, and that means that the Greeks were who everybody emulated. You know, if you, if you went around to uh, Alexandria or Carthage on the other side, that as, as Greeks went out and around, and even as the Romans were out and built their roads and, and had their power and their Pax Romana, that it was still the Greeks that were the leaders in cultural things. And yes, that abated over those first couple hundred years. I don't, I don't think it was supplanted or subsumed so much by the Christians. Because remember, even in Jerusalem, you know, people always think, well, you know, after Christ came back, that Jerusalem must have been the head of Christianity. Well, it wasn't. You know, they were still heavily persecuted right there in Jerusalem and around various places. Look at the, well, let's persecute uh, Christians for, you know, for entertainment in in the Roman world, and that that went on for a few hundred years. It, it's funny when you look at, you know, who Thomas Sowell is. 
Oh yeah, he's awesome. I love Thomas Sowell. I, he's just I I just admire that guy. I uh, ninety three and still writing books. And ninety three, yeah, I just yeah, I just got his most recent book, and it's called uh, Social Justice Fallacies. Yeah. And he talks about you know how it, it, it it's good book. I I've read it. I recommend it. But one of the points he makes that you know is it genetic? You know, are we racially different because of our genetics? Or you know, and he makes the point that at the time of Christ, think of how many famous Greeks there were. And there were a bunch of them in that period. And now at that same time, how many famous Britons were there? And it's like, well, you can't name one. You know, at that point, there were no famous Britons. Now, 2,000 years later, there's all kinds of famous Englishmen, and there's basically no famous Greeks at that point. And his point, he's, he makes that early on, saying that cultures change, parts of the world change. So in asking Richard, sending me back to a, you know, to, to the history books, said, okay, yeah, what, what exactly did... Uh, I'm just trying to make it easy on you. <laughs> Maybe, but the um, but as as the Greeks sort of descended out of their, they they had the same problems everybody else had. Their you know their economy, they they didn't you know they got invaded by you know other peoples, and it wasn't the Jews. You know it was you know the Huns came down and took over Rome. There were people coming out of various places in the Middle East, coming down toward the Mediterranean, and it was a time that you know did sort of descend into a darkness. And by the time that Muhammad shows up in about 600 AD, the Christians and the Jews really still hadn't rectified things. And, you know, what happened to the Greeks? You know, maybe we can talk about that next time. I will know more, I promise. Okay. Yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, you said the Old Testament was what not to do and all this, these laws and prescriptions didn't work. But as a Christian, how much of the Old Testament, I mean, you're supposed to look at the Old Testament and be like, all right, don't do that. Or are there core pieces of it that you should also adhere to like you know you're, you're not going to just love thy neighbor and love thy enemies and but abandon the ten commandments like, to the old testament i mean they don't frame it that way because it was so important that the jews stuck together that's why you've got you know those hundreds of begats and were related to and these are the sons and the tribes and the lists and all that kind of stuff because god wanted to keep track of his own what you see in the old testament the lesson is you learn the character of god and if, if the only thing you see is the warlike, you know, where you're going to, you know, bashing the heads of babies against rocks, where, you know, yeah, that that's all in there. It's important to see the whole thing in a context that, okay, man screwed up, God cursed man, you know, and what, what kind of a good God would do that anyway? But the idea that we have a choice to make, love has to be a choice. You have to say, you know, people that, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure you have too. At some point in your life, you had puppy love or whatever. And you said, oh, boy, I'm, I really love that person and I can't help it. I just love them so much. And people think that that should be the ethic and aesthetic for the, the whole world, that love is just this thing that you can't control. Well, you can. And love is a love is a choice. And you have to choose to react to things in a way that, okay, what is going to be best for everybody? So let's look at love that way. Forget about sexual love. Let's look at the love that helps people organize themselves and helps the other person thrive, you know, however that is. When things are peaceful and other people are thriving, they can be creative. That's the image we're creating because the image of God isn't isn't supposed to be one of terror and charity. It's supposed to be one of creativity, love, and and when I say creativity, not just thinking of new things to do, but let's have more people. You know that that's what God wants, and He wants His you know those He created to get along. And obviously, in many parts of the world, Christians are not you know immune from this, or they're not innocent of this. But when when somebody says, "Well, I don't like this person, or I don't like that person," or "Hey, what about those Jews?" or "What about those?" you know, other religions who aren't like us. And I'll always try to back somebody up and say, okay, even that neighbor you don't like, even somebody who's done you wrong in business or some relationship you've had that went horribly wrong, 
Tell me who it is you would pray for to not have salvation in Jesus Christ. And when you ask that of a Christian, it's like hopefully their hatred goes on tilt because no matter how much you dislike somebody, your your mission is to love others, not to just criticize others. Yes, you're supposed to you know rebuke people in love if you see them doing you know something sinful, but not so you can feel better about yourself, but so that their relationships can be, you know, can, can be mended and can be fixed and, and they can live a more, you know, life that, that flourishes. You know, we all know people that don't flourish and, and you would, you would like to, to, to see them, but that's, that's part of our fallenness. Some people take it and, you know, take our, uh, you know, the abilities, their minds and do great creative things with them. And some people do those great creative things in a very destructive way. You know, the, the people that, that right. worship money. And okay, if that's if that's your main thing, and you know, and I see Christians making that same mistake, it's like you know, if you're worshiping the money, then you're worshiping something earthly. The Bible's fairly specific, the New Testament especially is fairly earthly. Then mm-hmm. that which you have in this life isn't going with you. The old joke about you never see a U-Haul trailer hooked to a hearse. You know, there's. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard about that. Yeah, there, there, there's there's nothing funny. going with you. What what you what you have lived here. <laughs> I believe that that's going to have an effect on these later rewards. And then people want to say, well, tell me about the reward. I want my rewards. I've had a good life. I'm a good person. So I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. And you make it sound like a credit card with cashback rewards. Well, it's a training out. Exactly. And that's what I'm trying to do. It makes it sound like a transaction that if you do this, you do that. That's absolutely not how love works. We want to define you. As soon as you make love a list, here's all the things my wife does. Here's all the things that I do. And if, okay, I cook dinner twice a week and here I cleaned the toilets the other day and she's done the laundry and we both have jobs and we share our money and our resources and I've got my kids and she's got her kids where, you know, we've only been married for about 15 years, but we're old. So, you know, we make all that stuff together work. So is that our love that we have for each other? And people, you know, will do that with, you know, trying to count their I have to be able to find these things in the Bible. I have to be able to to say this is this is exactly what it means to be a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, then you're something less. And what I always yeah. try to promote with other Christians is don't don't ever do it. If you if you've got something, if you see somebody doing something that's evil, and you can do something about it, then you ought to feel free to jump in, not just stand back and say, "Hey, you know, this is an un- right. ungodly mess." But hey, it's not my problem. Well, it may be your problem, but you have to lead it with your love, sometimes with righteous anger. But, you know, you've got to understand that what you're doing it for is so that everything will be better, not just to take out your rage on somebody and then they're gone or whatever you do with them. You know, what have you done to, you know, to make the world a better place? So, And there's a lot of Christians. But what do you do? Like, you know, again, your, your Christian life, like, what do you take from the Old Testament Oh, versus the new. Do you are you like eighty percent new, twenty percent? I know it's ridiculous. But what are you supposed to do? You want to understand that the Bible, to me, know that that's the character of God. I think people. One of the great mistakes is still being made is that people try to follow the Old Testament laws. It's you know Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of laws. The Old Testament says that the world will be saved through the seed of Abraham, and because it says seed, not seeds. People, you know, theologians will, will dial in on that kind of specifically and say, okay, that means a seed, that means one person, that means Jesus Christ. And that's, and that's kind of how I, I, I look at things. That, that, Like it says in Matthew 5, that everything about the law was correct, 
but the fulfillment of the law is in is in Jesus Christ. So that if we're going to you know try to follow the Old Testament laws, we're falling back into a covenant of obedience and a and a covenant that you remember that's very very specific to just the Jews. Those laws didn't apply to anybody else. They didn't apply to the Greeks. They didn't apply to the Romans. None of those Jewish laws applied to anybody but the Jews, and that was because the Jews were God's chosen people. So they're not on the hook for that. When we or so. Only the Jews are on the hook for that. When you look at Jesus Christ and he says, okay, now the Jews have delivered into the world this man, Jesus, who is the son of God, and he is here for everybody. And if you believe in him, he's the way and the truth and the life, and, and he's the way to restore your broken relationship with God. Okay, well, that all worked. There's a, there's, there's a word for what you're talking about, where if you dismiss the Old Testament and only think about the new, and that word is supersessionism. If you refuse to acknowledge anything about the Old Testament and only read the New Testament and think everything before that doesn't matter, you would be called a supersessionist. There's another group of people called the dispensationalists, and this is something that's fairly new. This is something that's come in the last couple hundred years, and I would say most of what the modern Protestant Bible experience, people don't really don't even realize how much this is permeated in all aspects of modern doctrine, prayer, and all those kinds of things. But that is where you take the whole of the Bible, all uh, 4,500 years of it. And yes, I know people say, well, yeah, but you can't prove it. It's been billions of years. Fine. Forget that. Just look at the Bible as a 4,500-year chunk of time. And that what dispensationalism is, that each one that at the beginning and this part, the fall, and then the creation of... uh, Anyway, there, there are seven of these dispensational periods of which we're currently in the six. And each one is laid out in the Bible. People have discovered this. I I don't buy it. Okay. There are people, it, it's it's a it's a large, very academic thing that people came up with through the eighteen hundreds. People listening, I mean, this was Dwight Moody. I mean, you have Moody Radio in, in every town. But th- this was a huge movement in the late eighteen hundreds and into the nineteen hundreds. And even you know, it was spilled into Billy Graham. But they look at at the entirety of the Bible and say, okay, here's there's seven dispensations in it. Each and each one of those dispensations, just a big word really for an era. Here is here is a set of challenges God put on man. At the creation, okay, here, man, here's the creation. Okay. So now you got man, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then there's the fall. Okay, Satan. Okay, so that's another era. Then we go through and this era that we're in right now that stretches back to Christ is, okay, how long before you know, Jesus is coming back. And with the current events, the way things are going, that when you look at, at the prophecies, whether it's in Revelation, there's a big chunk in Peter, there's a big chunk in Mark, there's a chunk in the sides of the end of the age or the end of Matthew, I think, or in there. And if I've got those mixed up, my apologies. But there's no shortage of prophecy in the New Testament that says when you see this, 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 and this, that you are looking at the impending return of, of Christ. Okay. There's a, I don't know if you're familiar with a cartoonist, he's fairly famous in conservative circles. His name's Gary Varvel. And his work has, you know, has appeared in USA Today. He used to be the, uh, I'm here near Indianapolis, Indiana. And for years, he was the editorial cartoonist in Star, at, in the Indianapolis Star, the newspaper here with Gannett, which owns USA Today. And Gary's a, a known Christian. He's a, he's a fabulous guy to listen to, but he does a lot of writing on just this topic of, is this the end times? So if you go to you know, Gary Varvel, people who are familiar with Christian stuff tend to know Gary because he shows up in various Christian publications, various conservative publications. But if you just go to GaryVarvel.com, he's a he, he's got a fabulous list of all these, you know, these times and dispensations for how he reads it that this is the end of the world. And it's you can get through life easily without thinking about that. But 
On the other hand, for those who really who study that the Bible as that entire thing with all these dispensations, that's the, you know, he, he's a good one to read. But there was a book out. What's up? Since the last time we talked, there's there's a fellow named Dan Hummel, H-U-M-M-E-L, who's up in Wisconsin, works at a seminary or at a college, but it, it's called the, the Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And, and until I read that book, I didn't realize how much, how all this, you know, this whole idea of the entirety of the Bible, um, how how that's all been dissected and sectioned and, you know, and created this new story. But this is one where it puts the whole Bible together as one long story. And it talks about things like the dual kingdom, that when there's the, uh, the kingdom of God, which we see in Christ, but now there's going to be a kingdom of David that will come and do what the Jews actually hoped the Messiah was there for, which was to kill the Romans, or to kill their enemies and to make them an ascendant uh, nation on earth. And I look at this stuff and I say, well, I don't read that into the Bible, but, you know, people have. So you've, you've got all these different things that you can discuss. I look at the Bible as another thing about the Old Testament is that it's a story without an end. There, there's no end of the Old Testament. It just stops there at Malachi with the prophecies and so forth. Mm. And then nothing. And then you've got Jesus. And then you've got the importance of the Apostle Paul is that he was a Pharisee. He knew everything there was to know about Hebrew scripture. He was, and, and he was trained as he was, he was essentially a Greek scholar. He knew Greek. He was a brilliant writer. So being a Jew and also a Roman citizen, because toward the end of Acts in this time we're talking about, they, they try to punish him. The Romans do it. I say, well, you can't do that because I'm a Roman citizen. So here you go. I mean, here's the Apostle Paul. He's a Pharisee. So he's a Jewish leader. He's a Roman citizen. And he's a Greek scholar. And here's the guy that writes most, actually Luke wrote the most of the New Testament, only two books, but line the word by Luke's actually wrote a little bit more. But you've got these 13 books of Paul, and it, it takes this view kind of that you were suggesting earlier that, okay, you've got, you know, the Greeks and the Jews, and, and you got to read all these, these competing things. And Paul was a guy that could take all, all those cultures and intelligences and philosophical views and put them together in a way that people would listen to him because the Greeks saw his Greek scholarship. And the Romans understood he was a Roman citizen. He didn't agree with everything about Jesus. And when, you know, he was the guy that was standing there when they stoned Stephen, he's standing there holding somebody's coat who's doing the stoning. Then he, Christ talks to him on the road to Damascus. And then now you've got this powerful disciple for, not for the Jews, but for the rest of the world. So when you've got, you know, you've got a Paul and you have a, you know, that well-rounded, it's obvious that they wanted the story to spread and to be told so that that would go cross-culturally. When uh, we were talking about the Tower of Babel, I told you last time, I'm, I'm teaching high school now. I'm retired. Yeah. I thought I was done working in a Christian high school here. Now I'm, I'm teaching high school history, including a world history, which has been a kind of a reboot of knowing all these these older times. And and, it, and it's a real joy, the fact that the the textbooks we use have, you know, have got some scripture uh, verses in them. But I, you know, I look at Paul and what Paul was able to do in his scholarship and in telling the, the story of God in many languages takes me back to the Tower of Babel because what was the point of the Tower of Babel? Well, God confused their languages. Yeah, why did he do that? Well, because they built this tower and because they, they wanted to honor, they wanted to reach God. Okay, well, why were they trying to do that? Was it for God's honor? Well, no, as it turns out, when you read this in Genesis 10, it was really for their own glory. They thought, they God said, I want you to go into all the world. So again, you know, that's a recurring theme. But he had told people to disperse after the flood and go out and Tell of the glory of God in all the earth. Going all the, well, they got as far as Babylon, built the Tower of Babel. 
and when you read it, it's almost funny because God says, let us go down and see what they're doing. He says, let us go down, which I take to be not him and a couple of his angels, but him and, you know, and his trinity that would be his son and the spirit. And well, people think that that, you know, the language thing was a punishment. No, God wants to be praised in, in all the earth, in all the languages, and that it, it increases his glory, I guess, if, if other languages, if you can be glorified in those other languages. And when you stop and think about it, creating a language is no easy thing. Well, we have a Gen Con convention here in town. It's a comic convention that's, and they have all the Star Wars crazy, where I'm getting to, you know, so people speak, well, they'll speak uh, Klingon from uh, Star Trek, or they'll speak the Wookiee language from Star Wars. And they come up with these languages, not that I'm into that at all, but if you stop and think, what if you have to come up with a language, you have to come up with words to describe things, uh, describe actions, to describe nuances of feelings and so forth, wouldn't that be a very difficult assignment? And that's what God did with the Tower of Babel. I don't want you to stay here. I'm going to give you this language and you that language and everybody, so that then the people that spoke the same languages, they found, okay, they sort of found each other because it's the only people they could communicate with. And then those people went out into the rest of the earth. Like you said, I guess, in the beginning, uh, there's a lot of mystery that may never be known. And uh, if someone needs to have everything resolved, and everything figured out in order to have faith, then that's a problem. It's, but it's still, you got to ask these questions anyway. Sure. Yeah. You know, I write this weekly column on a blog called commonchristianity.blogspot.com. And last week I talked about my first Bible and how, you know, I, I couldn't read the Bible for most of my life. I didn't understand it. I wasn't interested in it. Did the meant anything to me, generally didn't matter, just an old book and so forth. But I guess, Rich, because I you know, leave it with one thing, is that, yeah, we, there, there's a point where you have to ask questions to achieve a degree of understanding. And once you have the understanding that you're okay with the faith, you're, you're okay in not having all the answers, you know, that's a real accomplishment. And most of the world wants to have specifics when in the outer, you know, these, these outer realms of God, there's a lot of that that you're not going to know. And the Bible says you won't know it. You know, that God operates on a different uh, level. So, yeah, we do it. And I, I like the thought of being able to, you know, talk about it on a daily basis at school and that mm. we can know that, uh, you know, that, that the truth doesn't change. You know, that that's one that's one good test of truth. If uh, it's true today, but not true tomorrow, or was true once, but not true today, those are all things that are passing. That's the yeah. word where the truth people wonder if is the Bible inerrant? And I would say, yes, the Bible is inerrant. Is the Bible all true? Yes. Is the Bible all literal? And I'd say, no. I mean, I think there's a lot of literal stuff in it. I mean, the resurrection, I, I mean, I believe all that. But when you look at all the metaphors, the poetry, the, uh, you know, the parables, you know, did all those things actually happen? I don't think it matters. I think the lesson is what matters, and the faith is what. So, so it's it sounds like the Old Testament is a is a big lesson to you, even if you don't, let's say, ascribe to it, follow many of the laws in there. But it's still useful. It's, is it necessary to your faith? You believe is it necessary to Christian faith? Yeah, I think if you just started out at Jesus, you, you wouldn't have all those prophecies. You wouldn't have the depth of understanding about humanity and what the problem is. Uh, another way to look at it is that here, you're the Old Testament. Here's the problem. New Testament, here's the solution. Old Covenant, I'm going to show you guys, why, the Jews, I, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to give you a specific set of rules, and then you're going to follow them up, you're going to add a bunch to it, you're going to start worshiping yourselves, which I'd rather you not do. And then I'm going to send the solution, my son, so that you'll see what the real way is, Okay, and then you're going to kill it, and then we'll bring him back, and then people will know that I am God. So, you know, there are ways to look at it, but I I, yeah, I think it's a mistake to try to either remove the Old Testament from its lessons or to overdo it 
you know, you get in a fight in Sunday school with this because you're always going to have people, well, no, you got to follow those Old Testament laws. That's your obedience. I'm like, oh, love God and love others. Do what Jesus told you to do. Well, very good. Well, Bob, thank you again for coming. For people that want to get your weekly column, you know, through email, what do they do? Do they email you? And if so, what's your email? Yeah, my, you know, I, I have to have by my kids. I've still got an AOL email. It's rlw.com, rlwcom at aol.com, commonchristianity.blogspot.com. My emails at the bottom of every of every column. You know, uh, always like hearing from people, particularly people that have a, a different view. And because I always learn something, that's that's my favorite thing is learning stuff. So, oh, one one last question. What's one mystery or question that you've had maybe for a long time that, you know, perhaps someone listening may respond and answer? Yeah, you asked. Yes, we talked. This is on the last podcast. My question is, why me? Why do I understand this? And and I do. Do I know everything? No. But do I have a faith that, you know, can it be shaken? I, I guess I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. But but why me? Why not my brother? Why not? And by that, I mean my, my, my brother, Joe. Why do some people understand this and other people just just don't? And, you know, I also always kind of wonder, well, why would God put evil in the Garden of Eden? Why did he even let that in there to start with? Yeah. And my friend George, you know, we talked about, you know, he laughed and said, well, that's a story. Well, people don't like to hear that the Bible is just a story because they think just a story is just a story. So it's probably not true. Like, well, it's just a myth. So it's a myth. So it's totally false. You know, that's not exactly what it means. You know, we are gifted by God to with the gift of stories. God communicates with us and we communicate with, with each other in stories. I don't know how God communicates, you know, within the Godhead, but with human beings, we have the gift of stories. And so if the, if the Garden of Eden was a story and that's God's truth that he wants us to know about, yes, there's a Satan. Yes, we were created perfect. Yes, we fell. Now we're not. Okay. And I'm like, and the only, I could kind of come up with sort of a question there or sort of an answer because without choices, addressed this a minute ago, but without choices, you really can't love. You can't coerce love. So without a, you know, you've got a choice to do good or a choice to do bad, a choice to follow Jesus or a choice to follow your own self or pride, which, you know, would, that would be following Satan. Not that I'm Satan and not that I'm Jesus. It's just that, you know, which which effect are you going to, you know, are you going to to allow to be ascended in your life? So maybe, maybe that's part of that answer, but I still don't know why after 47 years, one day, you know, my kid wanted to go to church. I go to church. Next thing you know, I'm in, I'm in soft tears because I suddenly knew it was true, and I don't know why. It sounds spooky, and it sounds, but almost every Christian you talk to is going to have had an experience of like when they got it. I call it my awakening, and that was before I read the Bibles, before I knew really much of anything about it. But yeah, so that'd be mine, you know. But and the problem with that is, if I say why me, who am I thinking about? I'm thinking about me and my own pride, not about others. So I can't, I can't come to grips with that one quite yet. Maybe someday. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming back. And you know, I highly encourage listeners, if you're interested, sign up for his column. It's free. It comes once a week. It's very uh, interesting and informative. So thanks again, Bob, for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. God bless. God bless. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.